Get in there. All right. So I have a, a question for us. If you could cite a passage of the Bible that would, from the Old Testament, that would communicate Jesus' identity, his nature, his mission, what would you choose? A passage from the Old Testament. And a lot of the New Testament is going to talk about Jesus. But if you think about it, in the first century, when Jesus is walking around and all of the Israelites are trying to make sense of who Jesus is, they're not. The New Testament doesn't exist yet. So they're going to make sense of Jesus through the Old. So what would they go to? You might think, well, maybe Exodus 3. Because there God reveals himself and what he's like to Moses. Where he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. And the Lord says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. You could say, well, this is what Jesus is like. He sees our misery. He hears our cries. He's concerned. And so he's come to rescue us and bring us into the new creation. Jesus does do that, but Matthew doesn't use that passage in his gospel. Maybe you'd say, huh, well, uh, in the... Uh, in." Daniel 7, there's this phrase about that Jesus seems to use a lot to describe himself. It's the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man all the time in the Gospels. And in Daniel 7, we see that. Where Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yeah, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus does have authority, all glory, and sovereign power, and he's bringing the kingdom which cannot be destroyed. All of those things are true. And Jesus will actually cite this passage later on in, this, in the Gospel of Matthew. But Matthew, the Gospel writer, doesn't use this. In fact, if Matthew were to use a, a book of the Old Testament to try to give us a picture of who Jesus is, it's, it's going to be Isaiah. In fact, he uses Isaiah a ton. More than any other Old Testament book, Matthew will draw from Isaiah to make sense of who Jesus is. Isaiah, Matthew will say, documents Jesus' birth. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew 1. John the baptizer's ministry is preparing the way of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 3. Isaiah spoke about that. Jesus is the light of the world, enabling humanity to see the world, each other, themselves, and God as they were meant to. That's Matthew 4. And again, he cites Isaiah. And then in Matthew 8, Jesus, we're told, is the Messiah who brings healing and restoration. According to Matthew, if there's any Old Testament prophet that faithfully and effectively conveys the identity of the promised Messiah, it is Isaiah. Isaiah gets Jesus. And so it should be no surprise that as we come to the midpoint of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew cites a lengthy passage 
from Isaiah again. In fact, it is the longest Old Testament passage you'll find in all of Matthew's Gospel. And as one guy I read put it, Isaiah's prophecy paints the entire Christ. Matthew wants us to get who Jesus is, because if you get Jesus the way his disciples eventually do, you will come to him. And if you see Jesus, you will be drawn to him. So let's look at what Matthew wants us to get about Jesus from Matthew 12, verses 15 through to 20 and 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name the nations will put their hope. Our Father in heaven, speak to us this morning, so that we could see your Son, Jesus, as he truly is. Give us ears to hear a message of hope from you. Give us eyes to see him. And then give us a heart to respond and trust that he has come for us. To restore us, to forgive us, to give us life to the full. To lead us in that way everlasting. To fill us with your life, God, we pray. In your name, amen. Now, what's really strange about this passage, I mean, there's a bunch of things that are strange a lot of this reference to Isaiah uses language we don't use in our everyday, language, uh, everyday conversations with people, so that's one strange thing. The other thing that's strange about it is that we're told Jesus, who's Messiah, the, the promised king, who's going to restore God's creation, is withdrawing. And he's telling people not to tell others about him. He's withdrawing, and he commands silence about who he is. Messiahs don't normally retreat, they advance. They don't normally hide. They make themselves known. But Isaiah is this lens that Matthew wants us to make sense of and understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. And what I'd like to try to do is highlight some parts of this uh, passage that we are looking at this morning. But what we need to know about Jesus. And so first, who is Jesus? In verse 18, we're told. Who is Jesus? Who do we need to know he is? He is the servant son of God. He's the bearer of the spirit. And he's the proclaimer of saving and judging justice. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. This is God's spoken word about his son, Jesus. Jesus is God's chosen servant son. And this word for uh, uh, servant in Greek is pais. And it can be rendered as well as a child. And nine times... Jesus is presented as a chi- as a, the child in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. This is my chosen child, my chosen servant. He's the one I'm pleased with. He's the one I put my spirit on. And this closely parallels, if you know the story of Jesus' baptism, it really closely parallels what God the Father says. In Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, this is what it reads. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Immediately following this verse, Jesus, we are told, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus is the servant's son, and he's endowed with the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit, and he will be victorious over the devil in the wilderness. Who is Jesus? He is the servant son of God. See, he's a king, but he's not like the other kings of this world. He comes to serve. And he comes bearing the Spirit of God. And what he proclaims is justice. So what justice? Now this Greek word justice, it's crisis. It's usually translated ethically as justice or judgment eschatologically. It can be translated in these two ways. When it's eth- talking about eth- ethically, it's talking about justice. When it's talking about eschatologically, which means referring to God's divine judgment on human beings at the very end of time, it can refer to that as well. And Matthew, in his gospel, he almost exclusively uses it in the sense of a word of judgment, not ethically. So what is the divine judgment that God wants Jesus to proclaim to the nations? It's a verdict of grace. It's a verdict of forgiveness and freedom. Jesus proclaims God's divine judgment is forgiveness and grace. Amnesty. But of course, that makes sense if you've been paying attention in the Gospel of Matthew. What Jesus has been proclaiming since announcing the kingdom of heaven that it's arrived is, is that very thing. It's this verdict of grace. You hear it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. What are the very first words Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourners, for they will be comforted. You are flourishing when you recognize how utterly dependent on God you are for life, for grace, for forgiveness. The kingdom belongs to those who see their great need and come to me, Jesus says. You're flourishing when you're grieved by your sin, by the sin of others, when your heart breaks because you see the gap between what was meant to be and what currently is. And the gap between what currently is and what will be. You're an aching visionary. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be rightly related to me, to others, themselves, and the earth, because they will be satisfied. This is the verdict of God through Jesus. When you pray, Jesus will teach us in the Sermon on Mount, you call him Father. He's your heavenly Father, and you can ask him to wipe out all of the debt of your sin. You can ask him to wash away all of the stain of your sin, all that would separate you from him, all that would separate you and and, uh, hinder you from experiencing the life he intends. God's verdict for you when you turn and enter into my kingdom, says Jesus, is forgiveness. Not bitterness, not fear, not hatred, not anxiety but release from all that inhibited you you from experiencing the life he intended for you to experience. Jesus is God's chosen son and servant, endowed with the Spirit, and he proclaims God's saving and judging justice. And he proclaims it to you and I today. 
Now, how does Jesus go about proclaiming this, ministering to others? What is Jesus' way of being? We're told how he goes about ministering to others in verse 19. We're told in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Which Matthew wants us to see about Jesus is, look, there are these religious leaders who reject Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, who is bringing the kingdom of God on earth, despite the fact that they witness Jesus healing people, forgiving people's sin, teaching about what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. They are hostile to Jesus' message. And yet, as they seek to confront him, and question him, and try to cause him to look like he's a false teacher, Jesus does not at any point seek a dramatic confrontation with them to try to prove himself. When he would be confronted by the Pharisees, he would stand up and speak out, but he wasn't an annoying salesman. He wasn't coming and knocking on the door at inopportune times or calling you as in the middle of dinner. Not what he's doing. He's not trying to wrangle you. Jesus starts a small and works quietly, inconspicuously, in many ways unnoticed. He's the opposite of a false messiah who are manipulative. They want your attention. They're deceptive. They overpromise, underdeliver. They make a show of everything. Jesus does the opposite. He's not like that. That's not what he's interested in. He's not interested in a show at all. Jesus, the Messiah, is poor. He's born poor, born in a manger, not in a palace. He doesn't live in Jerusalem, the religious center. He doesn't grow up in Rome, the political center of power. He grows up around the Sea of Galilee, basically the boonies for the Israelites. He starts his revolution with 12 disciples, and they're not the smartest guys, they're not the richest guys. They're not the people you think of starting a revolution with, the ones who could be most committed, who will just do and be highly strategic or anything like that. They're fishermen. One's a tax collector. By most people, most of the Israelites, he's considered to be a turncoat because he's working with the empire. Another one's a religious zealot trying to uh, zealously overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, all you come Follow me, and I'll make you into something you're not. They are impatient, we see throughout the Gospels. They're slow to learn. They're judgmental at times. They're sleepy. They don't exactly proclaim this picture of being mighty, sharp, consistent, determined, strong, with lots of access to wealth and resources. And yet Jesus chooses them. He wants them to be with him all the time. And he says, as you're with me, I will turn you into something you're not, and you will be part of this revolution I am bringing. But it's not going to look the way the world expects a revolution to look. The smallness of his beginnings did not make Jesus anxious or insecure as he started out his ministry. And as Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, we see this powerful example of this quiet faithfulness, It's not drawing a ton of attention. Jesus refuses to prove himself. 
by turning rocks into bread, by throwing himself off of a temple mount in order to have angels rescue him, or to be crowned as king over all over the world by surrendering to the devil's ways. He says, that's not the way of the kingdom of heaven. That is not the way that I'm going to live. That is not the way I rule. Instead, he is one who brings healing to the sick, to the weak. He sends his disciples out to carry in on his way of being. This quiet faithfulness, marked by compassion for the hurting and helpless, proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come, just as Jesus has announced. And he says, and you have the authority to do what I do. Healing the sick, living in dependence of God for what you need, going where people are receptive to his message, expecting rejection as innocent as doves, as wise as snake. You're going as sheep among wolves, he will say. He says, I'm sending you out exactly the way I'm going out. If you're going to be with me and you're going to become like me, you have to experience what it is like to walk in the ways I walk. I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the way I do it is not through violence or force, but by laying down my life. And my disciples can expect to follow me in that, laying down their lives. See, on the way, of the cro- on the way to the cross, Jesus is remarkably quiet. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus doesn't actually talk a lot or try to make a defense for himself before the religious leaders, before political leaders. They make false accusations against him. They mock him. And for the most part, he's pretty quiet. Pilate will say to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yeah, you said it. And then he'll say, don't you hear what they're accusing you of? that you're a false teacher, that you're misleading people, that you're trying to lead an insurrection? Jesus doesn't make a single reply. Then Pilate will say, hey, don't you realize I have power to either free you or to have you crucified? Kind of like, don't you want to actually make a defense? I could free you. You could be spared of this. And Jesus just says to him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. See, Jesus is himself in all of these circumstances, all these accusations, all of these confrontations. Jesus has no need to prove himself or clamor about for your attention, for my attention. Why would Jesus act like this? Why would Jesus be going about quietly, not clamoring for attention? It's because of Jesus' relationship with his Father. Listen to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 12. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. The fruit of being rightly related to God is peace, wholeness, and this quiet confidence. That's what righteousness is about, being rightly related to God, and then to ourselves, and then to others. And the fruit of righteousness, what comes out of that being rightly related is peace, wholeness and this quiet confidence and that is jesus's way of being because he's always been rightly related to god he's practiced being still before his heavenly father and so when he's facing this noisy resistance and these clamoring voices expressing skepticism at who he is what he's about He's firm, steadfast, and confident in his identity and who he is and in the mission he's been given. 
He is God's beloved son and servant, and he makes justice possible. And the way he makes justice possible is through the cross, through his death and resurrection. Through that very act, he wipes away the debt that we owe, that separates us from God. This is what Jesus will invite all of his followers into. There's this guy, his name is Josh Nadeau. He wrote this piece called The The New Currency is Noise. And he says, we live in the time when having eyes on us means we're valuable. What's the fastest way to have people look at you? Make noise. And he lists how this can express itself in our lives, in politics, relationships, spirituality, and especially on social media. And he'll say, we see it all over social media. Everything is noise. Even, he'll say, formation, referring to like spiritual formation, becomes noise. Solitude becomes noise. All for others to see. That's the new currency. We're trading in noise for some desperate attempt to be seen and valued, asking, screaming to be loved. The way of Jesus, however, is a lot quieter. It's often unseen. And in those unseen and quiet places, love bursts forth. See, Jesus is not going about his ministry clamoring, saying, everybody, look at me. Let's get some flyers out there and tell everybody. The way that Jesus does his ministry and heals and calls people into life is in this quiet and gentle and gracious way. That's why Jesus will say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly. It's who he is. He knows who he is. He knows what he's about. He doesn't have to go about proving himself. And the love that he receives from the Father is what he's able to pass on. So he's not clamoring for other people's love. Part of learning for us to walk in the way of Jesus is receiving the justice that Jesus proclaims. Grace for you. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are made right with God. You have peace with God. You are made whole. You have access to the throne room of God. You are adopted into the family of God. He is your heavenly father, and he loves to take care of you. Your physical needs, your material needs, your spiritual needs. You are a citizen of heaven, endowed with the same spirit that empowered Jesus in his ministry and raised him to new life. You have God's attention. You don't got to clamor for it. There is never a time when he is not aware of you, not caring for you, not waiting to be gracious to you. Part of learning to walk in the way of Jesus is receiving his attention and love and then going out and meeting others and pointing them in the direction of the one who has the words of life, whose words are able to actually release healing whose words restore, empower, direct, encourage. And we can only do that as we ourselves come to him and find our sense of worth in what he says about who we are, about what he wants us to be part of. But then in verse 20, we read something else about the way he goes about his ministry, about his way of being. We're told, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What this is about is that Jesus goes about his work cherishing broken people. Cherishing broken people. The reed was a symbol of weakness. 
And a broken reed was weakness that borders on collapse. Something that is close to just on the verge of breaking down. A smoldering wick is a flickering wick. A flickering flame that's almost consumed. There's barely anything left. A smoldering reed and a, uh, sorry, a broken reed and a smoldering wick are the undistinguished. They're the hurting, the helpless, the marginalized, the weak. They're so hurt, they have this diminished vitality. And what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is these types of people and their pain and hardship in Matthew's chapter 8 and 9. People who, are, who have different challenges that they're facing. They tend to be the outcasts. And what does Jesus do? He gives them special attention. He cares. He won't snap off that reed. He won't snuff out that flame. This is meant to be this uh, uh, ironical kind of understatement. Meant to express that he will especially cherish broken people. He won't break you off. He's the savior of the weak, of the broken. Those who feel like they're failures, like they need help, like they're drowning. So what? You might think. That's great. I've heard this, all of this before. I think about what this means for us. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God, but look about how he's bringing it into our world. It's completely upside down from the way the world expects a movement to begin. Most revolutionary leaders do not have time for the weak. Bruised, broken reeds, smoldering, flickering flames, they're not the candidates for a movement. You want someone who's strategic, who's committed, not weak, floundering failures, the sick, those bordering on collapse. But Jesus says, yeah, but I have a penchant for working with the bruised rather than the polished reeds. I am drawn to the flickering flames more than those glowing flames. I won't scream and shout to get your attention as some clamor about for it. I won't bring the kingdom with force, manipulation, or violence. I will work quietly and gently. And that is why you're blessed if you're not offended, because I'm not the Messiah you expected. You're flourishing if despite all of the suffering and hardship and confusion, you still hold on to me. You're flourishing if despite all of the hardship, you still call me good, faithful, and true. And if you feel like you're at your wit's end, if you feel like you don't have enough faith, enough peace, enough capacity, I am drawn to you. My heart is moved to compassion for you, and I cannot help but draw near. See, the first lines of Isaiah tell us that Jesus is the servant son of God endowed with the spirit. But these middle lines tell us the heart of Jesus. What is he like? He ministers quietly in the everyday things of our lives with this penchant for helping the broken and the weak. And it's not because he has no care for those who are doing okay. What this is highlighting though is those who recognize their need, those who recognize the brokenness in our lives, those who aren't so proud as to pretend that nothing is wrong in our life. And see, the remarkable thing is it's painful to acknowledge what hurts in our life. It doesn't always feel great. It's easier to stay busy, but when we begin to acknowledge it, it begins to really hurt. I've shared this in the past, but a number of years ago, I, I went through uh, this thing called Freedom Session. And one of the things they have you do is acknowledge all of your uh, hurts 
ways people hurt you in the past. And going through that exercise made those past experiences more real for me when I would have to give attention to them, write them out, talk about how I felt more real than I had felt when I wasn't doing that. It's like bringing up the pain, the discomfort, and acknowledging the unhealthy ways of coping in my life. All of that, though, when you bring in this passage, it's like, yeah, and Jesus is like, yeah, and when you did that, I just was so drawn to you. I'm not upset or surprised or overwhelmed by the pain in your life. I'm drawn to you and I care. I will not stuff out what feels like you're barely holding on. I will uphold and sustain you. I will draw near to you. And then in these final lines that we read in verses 20 and then 21, we get this promise. Matthew is basically summarizing the first little bit what Jesus has already been doing, but now he's pointing towards what Jesus will do through Isaiah's words. Till he has brought justice through to victory, and in his name the nations will put their hope. Jesus doesn't simply proclaim justice. He brings justice. He brings justice, that saving and just judgment of God. Jesus sees the... See, you think about that passage we read from Exodus. Jesus does see the misery of the world. And he does hear our cries. And he cares. And so he does come down to rescue and bring us into a new creation. I will not rest, Jesus says, until the world is put to rights. I will not stop until the perfect justice and righteous judgment of God is enjoyed in heaven down to earth. Because sometimes we don't like the word judgment. But what judgment is about is actually restoring creation to what it was supposed to be. It's judging evil, this aberration of what was meant to be in our world. We don't like that when we think it begins to apply to us. But the reality is what God is doing is he he created the world, the entire cosmos with a purpose. And he actually called it good. And he is so committed to what he's created, you human beings and all of the cosmos, that he will not quit until it is put to rights. And that's what judgment is about. Restoration and dealing with evil. I will not rest until the world is put to rights. Now how does Jesus do that? How does he do it? The victory that he brings is one and his death and resurrection. That's what, again, it's another upside down thing. It's upside down. Through trusting his Father in heaven, even to the point of death, Jesus wins victory over the satanic forces, bent on destroying and enslaving humanity. And of course, this makes sense because what causes the beginning of destruction What brings death into the world? What brings alienation and separation from God? It's just refusal to trust Him in the garden. Adam and Eve do it, sure. But as I remind my son, all of us do it. He's like, man, why why did Adam and Eve do that? They messed everything up. I'm like, man, if it was you and me, we would have done that. There would have been a moment where we wouldn't have trusted. Humanity 
refuse to trust. And that's why what Jesus does in the wilderness is so vital for us to see, is that he does trust the Father in that moment in the wilderness, and then he will trust the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he'll say, look, I don't want this, but I want your will more or than I want my own. So let your will be done. By trusting God the Father, Jesus wins a victory over our sin. Because as our representative, Jesus was perfectly obedient and he enjoys peace and this constant right relationship with the Father. He won our peace with God. He had to wait on God three days to be completely vindicated. Jesus only did what the Father wanted him to do and the Father raised him to new life. Ulrich Luz, he he says, it is precisely the non-violent Jesus who in the temptations rejected world lordship, who will be in God's name the one who will execute final judgment over the world. And it's nothing less than a complete miracle. Because it's so upside down from what you would expect a king to do. And then that passage from Isaiah says, it's in his name the nations will hope. In his name. Name in the Bible means a person. In the person of Jesus, the nation will hope. Why? Because if Jesus trusted the Father with his life, and the Father was faithful to him, he will be faithful to us as we trust in him. See, despite the ongoing presence of suffering and pain and sin in our world, despite the challenges we are facing even now, Jesus' resurrection enables us to live in anticipation of a future good. A future good. Jesus enables us to live and anticipate this future good for us in the coming days. And so we continue to come to him. We continue to gather, to hear from him, to receive from him his body and blood shed for us. Because in him we find our deepest nourishment, healing, and inspiration. Jesus enables us to live in this anticipation of future good for God's new creation which he has begun in his people, but will extend it to all of creation. God dwelling with his people, God restoring us, destroying Satan and demons, giving us our resurrected bodies like Christ already has, no longer bound by death and decay. And what we see in the Gospels is this picture of what it begins to look like. Bodies function the way they were meant to relationships being restored, people forgiving one another, people being forgiven by God and then extending that forgiveness. People no longer gripped by money, so they begin to give it away to others. People no longer gripped by being in control, and so they surrender it to him and begin to let him be the one who leads their life. You see that in Peter. Peter can't handle Jesus being arrested And he tries to stop Jesus from doing that. What does he do? He slices off that guy's ear and Jesus says, that's not the way my kingdom comes. It's not the way it works out. But when Jesus has risen and restored Peter, what does he tell him? He's like, there's going to be a point in your life where you're not going to be led by the way you want to be led. Someone else will lead you. Someone else is God himself. And that is the call for all of his disciples. Because although he is a king, he's a servant king, and he calls us to follow him in his way. And the king tells us who he is. I'm a servant. That's my way of being. And I invite you to walk with me in that. So Father in heaven, 
Lord, we confess that this portrait of your son, Jesus, your chosen son, beloved son and servant, is challenging for us, Lord, because of the different stories that we inhabit. Stories that tell us that actually it, it is through great strategy and strength that we can figure it out on our own. That it is through our, our, our money that we can solve all our problems and live comfortably. And then your Jesus, your son Jesus comes in and he shows us this totally different way that just feels so challenging. And you know, in many moments, hard to understand. But we ask that you would help us to see him as he truly is. Anointed by your son. Anointed with your spirit, Lord. And I ask God that um, for those who need to be reminded of his quiet gentleness, of being rightly related, enabling us to be walking in this quiet confidence in our own lives, how you really are at work even though it's subtle, I ask that you to speak your words of life into those situations today. I pray for those who um, actually just feel like they're at their wick's end. They don't got much left. I ask that you'd meet them, that they would see how you have you are there waiting to be gracious to them. But I also pray for those of us who we just feel like it's really hard for us to to live in that way of humility. That our our default is to just operate, not relying on you, not coming to you, not always feeling like we need you. Help us, Jesus. Have mercy on us. Change our hearts. And lead us so that we would be a people who regularly put our hope in you, anticipating this future good that is to come in you. And I thank you that you make an installment for that future good into the present by your spirit. You give us your Holy Spirit who makes his home in us, not just us as individuals, but as your people. And so you are here now. I thank you for that. I pray this in your name. Amen. One of the ways that as a church we get to enter into